Think of what could be. Psalm uh, 33. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Psalm 33. The psalmist writes, Shout for joy in the Lord, all you righteous. Righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven, He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Father, we thank you for this great psalm. And it declares what a mighty creator and deliverer that you are. Lord, forgive us that so oftentimes we trust in everything else but you. Lord, we know that all that we trust in will someday fail us, but you'll never fail us. Lord, help our eyes in the church to be upon you. And may we be a witness to others around us where our trust is. And help us to enable them to see, as we witness to them, that trust in you never disappoints because you're the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Tomorrow, of course, we celebrate the nation's birthday and all around us, Folks, just think of what we are observing on the landscape of America. We are observing a land that is in desperate need. 
It makes me think of what Chuck Colson wrote in his book, Against the Night. He said, we're entering a new dark age brought on by relativism, radical individualism, and materialism. People have grown accustomed to the dark and they don't even realize that the lights are out. As a nation, we're seeing right before our very eyes the character of the nation disappearing. What do we need? We need exactly what Psalm 33 tells us that we need. Psalm 33 shows us God's plan for His people. It points out that our trust cannot be in our own strength or wisdom. Our trust, not only individually, but our trust collectively, must be in God and in God alone. Let's look at that. First of all, this morning I want you to see from verse 12 a gracious promise. Read verse 12 with me again. He says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. It's a beatitude that's in the Old Testament, blessed. Your translation may say happy, and that's, a, that's an okay translation if you understand that he's not talking here about an outward happiness that changes with circumstances. He's talking about an inward peace and joy that's able to transcend anything you go through on the outside of your life. Just like we've seen of that word in the Beatitudes recently when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in heart, blessed are the meek. And he went on to talk about being a blessed people. It has a whole lot more to do than with our outward happiness. Now, folks, contrary to popular opinion, you need to realize it's, it's not God's desire that we simply be a happy people. It's God's desire that we would be a holy people. And if we are a holy people, we will be a happy people. Amen? As we look at America, are we enjoying this inward state of happiness and peace? I doubt it. 50% of all marriages, including marriages in the church among professing believers, 50% of them, a little over 50% now, are said to end in divorce. One million teenage girls will get pregnant out of wedlock in a given year. Only half of them will have their babies and the other half will abort them. Every 78 seconds in America, a teenager attempt suicide. Child abuse has gone up 240% since 1976. Corruption of public officials has gone up 450% since 1983. Illegal drug use is up almost 1,500% since the 60s. Currently, America has the highest illiteracy rate of any industrialized nation in the world. Now folks, I would submit to you this morning that those are certainly not good signs that America is enjoying this state of blessedness. Now obviously in the original context of this psalm, it is referring to Israel. Israel was chosen by God 
and blessed by God. You remember where all that began? Back in, in Genesis chapter 12, Abram was in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God told Abraham, I want you to leave from where you are and I want you to go to a place that I will show you and there I am going to build a great and a mighty nation out of you. And the Bible says that Abraham uh, stepped out in faith and he followed the Lord and the Lord kept his word. He built a great nation out of him. We know that they became enslaved in a foreign land and God delivered them through acts of great miracles and deeds. And as he delivered them, he told Moses, he said, And now you are going to see, Moses, that I, the Lord, do indeed make a distinction between Israel and all the other nations. Jeremiah chapter 2 talks about Israel in those early days. When Israel was following the Lord through the wilderness. In Jeremiah 2 the Bible says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love is a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and, and made my heritage an abomination." The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. The early days of Israel. How they followed the Lord and then they strayed. But nonetheless, folks, we know from the Word of God that Israel indeed was a blessed nation. And every time they did stray because they were God's chosen people, what would God do? He would discipline them to bring them back to himself. Just read the book of Judges sometimes. The seven cycles of sin and misery and judgment and then restoration that God would bring them through. Every time they cried out to God, God would give them a deliverer. I think of the Philistines in 1 Samuel, how they came against the Lord and the Lord's people. And they even stole the ark uh, of the covenant. And you'll recall how God brought plagues upon the Philistines. And they said, we've got to return the ark of the God of Israel. If we don't, he's going to end up destroying every one of us. God looked after his people. God protected them time and time again. Why? Because they were his people. Because he had set his affections upon them. They were blessed. 
But folks, the great thing about verse 12 here is that I believe it is a blessing to any nation whose God is the Lord. Yes, in context it refers to Israel, but it opens itself up uh, to be a promise to any nation. You know what? America needs to read this verse and think what could be. Amen? What could be? We once depended upon him. In many ways, we were exactly like Israel. In our early days as a nation, there was a great affection for God and the things of God and the Word of God. About every five years or so, I share some quotes with you that will just be a reminder to you of, of some of what our early fathers said. And as you listen to these quotes again this morning, I want you to think how far we have strayed from this. Listen to the words of John Jay. John Jay was the first chief justice and father of the Supreme Court and one of the primary writers of the Constitution. He said, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians as their rulers. Can you imagine a Supreme Court justice saying that today? And in 1892, the Supreme Court declared this about Christianity in America. They said, our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based on and must include the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible for it to be otherwise. To this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. 1892. A declaration by the Supreme Court. Also in 1892, in the case of the Church of the Holy Trinity versus U.S., the U.S., the Supreme Court said, this is a religious people. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation. These are not individual sayings, declarations of private persons. They are organic utterance. They speak the voice of the entire people. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of utterances that this is a Christian nation. And not only did Congress in 1782 approve the use of the Bible in our schools, they even paid for them with taxpayer dollars. And in 1844, when somebody sued to remove Bibles from the classroom, the Supreme Court ruled, why should not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation in the schools? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly as from the New Testament? The Rhode Island Charter of 1683 begins, We submit our persons, lives, and estates unto our Lord Jesus Christ and the King of kings and Lord of lords and to all those perfect and most absolute laws of His given us in His most holy word. 
1643, as more and more people arrived on these shores, they joined together to form the New England Confederation. They wrote a constitution. The first constitution written in the New World, and it begins with these words. Whereas we all came into these ports with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and in peace. Did you know that the state of Delaware, along with most other states, required office holders to take an oath affirming their own Christian faith before they could be considered fit to take office. In, in 1876, the Constitution of North Carolina read, No person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority of the Old and New Testaments or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within this state. Did you know also that in 1862, at the height of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln issued a general order requiring the observance of the Sabbath in the military. It's dated November 15, 1862, and it says, The President, Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, desires and, enjoy, and enjoins the orderly observance of the Sabbath by the officers and men in the military and naval service. The importance for man and beast of the prescribed weekly rest, the sacred rights of Christian soldiers and sailors, a becoming deference to the best settlement of a Christian people, and a due regard for the divine will demand that Sunday labor in the Army and Navy be reduced to the measure of strict necessity. The discipline and character of the national forces should not suffer, nor the cause they defend be imperiled by the profanation of the day or name of the Most High. And in the personal diary of George Washington, in his own handwriting, he says, Let my heart, gracious God, be so affected with your glory and majesty that I may discharge those weighty duties which thou requirest of me. Again, I have called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Thou gavest thy son to die for me and hast given me assurance of my salvation. Over a 10-year period, political science professors at the University of Houston collected and cataloged 15,000 writings by our founding fathers. And when they tried to determine the chief sources, primary sources from which their writings came, do you know that they found that 94% of the time, 94% of the time, their quotes and sayings came from Holy Scripture? On and on I could go with these quotes. Folks, look at what has happened to us. You remember what God said to the 
to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. You remember what Jesus said to his people? He said, you've continued to work hard. You've done this and you've done that, but you've taken a great fall because you don't love me anymore the way you once did. I think we could say that of our nation. We've taken a great fall. Now materialism is our God, money is our God, comfort and pleasure is our God. And those things won't last. John says in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And yet, folks, there's a great promise in verse 12 here. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now let's move on. Why is it so important? Why is it so important for us to yield to God? Because secondly, I want you to see here, a great, He is a great providence. Begin reading with me in verse 6. The writer says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a, as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Then look down at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. What does he say here about God? First of all, he talks about God as being an awesome creator that by his word, the heavens and the earth and all that is were established. When I read these words in Psalm 33, my thoughts go back to Genesis chapter 1 because in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, God said, let there be light and there was light. God said, let there be the primary light to rule over the day and a lesser light to rule over the night. On and on we go through the Genesis account and we see that God spoke by his word and it was so. It was done. He's an awesome creator. I think of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. 
Beginning in verse 22, Isaiah says, It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. He's an awesome creator. Someone has estimated that the oceans of the world contain more than 340 quintillion gallons of water. And yet, what does Isaiah say? He holds them all in the hollow of his hand. The earth weighs six sextillion metric tons. And yet, God says it's nothing more than a little bit of dust on the scales. The known universe stretches more than three of more than 30 billion light years, but God measures them all by the span of his hand. Scientists claim there are at least 100 billion galaxies, and each galaxy is made up of about a hundred billion stars. To such mind-boggling math, Isaiah reminds us that God calls each of those stars by name. He's an awesome creator. Now what's the conclusion of all this? It ought to be verse 8. In verse 8 the psalmist says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of Him. Folks, He deserves your heart. And He deserves my heart. And he deserves the heart of this nation. But I fear that we're going down that path that Moses warned Israel of in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in the book of Deuteronomy, in three great discourses, Moses is reminding the children of Israel what they've got to keep in the forefront of their minds when they cross the Jordan River and get into the new land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses says, You better be careful that when you get into the new land that you remember God. Because it's not you that's done this. It's God's mighty hand that's done this. And God says that if you get into this new land that he has given you by promise, simply because he set his affections on you, if you go the way of all the other nations and forget God and forget his commandments and no longer walk according to his statutes, the Lord says, as all the other nations God destroyed, so he will destroy you as well. Again, a promise and a warning to Israel. And yet, here again, you hear in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that general principle for all nations. God says He will do you just like He's done all the other nations because they too 
forgot Him. Folks, we are forgetting God as a nation. He's an awesome creator, and for her own good, America needs to stand in awe of God. But not only is He an awesome creator, but He's a wonderful counselor. Look at verses 10 and 11. We see there that the wisdom and counsel of man fails. Human wisdom and logic fails. God nullifies it all. God brings the counsel of men to nothing. But I want you to notice what verse 11 says. God's counsel and God's wisdom stand forever. It is true to all generations. God's word was God's word to your great, great, great granddaddy. And it's God's word to you and me today. 1 Peter 1 says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. God's able to be your wonderful counselor and give you wisdom and direction. And God can do the same for this great nation. Verse 13, 14, 15 point out that He sees all. And he understands all. Folks, rulers don't see into tomorrow. Our president doesn't see what's going to happen in this nation five days from now. And guess what? You and I don't either. We have no idea what's going to happen to this nation. Even perhaps this afternoon or tomorrow, we don't know because our wisdom is finite. But we know that there is one who does know. And he's able to give us his wisdom. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if there is any common sense in us whatsoever that we would turn to the one who sees tomorrow and we would trust him to guide us and lead us? Lastly, I want you to see that he offers a generous provision. A generous provision there in verse 16 and following. He says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. And those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. For he is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. What's he saying here, folks? Two things. The Lord gives safety and the Lord gives salvation. Let's look at both of those. He gives safety. Time and again in the Old Testament, we see how God provided safety for His people. There's a couple of different instances I think of. Back when God was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, and He led them out near the Red Sea, He led them right up to the Red Sea, and they were cornered by the sea. And Pharaoh changed his mind, and he was none other than the leader over the world power of the day, Egypt. And they had this great military. 
All these great warriors and chariots and Pharaoh changed his mind about letting the Israelites go. And so he pursued them in the wilderness and pursued them all the way up to the Red Sea. And you know what? It certainly seemed like from man's standpoint of view that Israel's God was a poor military commander. That's what it would have seemed like. And yet what did God do? He parted those waters... And he led his people through on dry ground. And when Pharaoh's army pursued, he brought all the waters of the Red Sea crashing back in and Pharaoh's army was destroyed. God protected his people. And then I think of the Midianites, how they were troubling Israel. And you remember what God did with Gideon. There were about 30,000 men who were going to fight. And God said, that's too many because if you fight and defeat the Midianites, everybody's going to say that they did it because of their own strength. He said, reduce them down. And Gideon turned to him and said, listen, if there are any among you who are afraid of the Midianites, go on home right now. Well, that reduced the troops down to 10,000. God said, that's still too many. Take them down by the water to drink. And choose those that bring up the water in their hand and lap it like dogs. And 300 men drank water that way. And God said to Gideon, that's the men that I'm going to choose to go out and defeat the Midianites. And that's exactly what God did. That all the earth would know that Israel's God was a great and a mighty God. He brings safety to His people. Now folks, you think what you want to think about the following illustration I want to give. You, you call it coincidence if you want to. But I can assure you in the writings of the men who were there, they didn't look at it as coincidence. On August 27th, 1776, just 25 days after the Declaration of Independence was signed by the final delegate, Washington's army of 8,000 found itself trapped at the water's edge of the East River near Brooklyn, New York. 20,000 experienced British soldiers were poised to attack. But for some reason they delayed their attack. Possibly waiting for the British fleet to sail up the river and close the trap. But suddenly rains came and a strong northeast wind arose, preventing the fleet from sailing. When night fell, Washington began to evacuate his army across the mile-wide river in small boats, a few men at a time, trying to save as many as he could. As morning approached... He knew that the boats would become easy targets for the British artillery. But just as the sun rose, an unusually dense fog formed and visibility dropped to just six yards. The fog remained in place until the very last boat that held George Washington himself set across the river. Then the fog mysteriously lifted. The British fired upon his boat, but by then it was already out of range. Not a man of the Continental Army was lost. Not a man. Coincidence? 
You think what you want. But many of the American soldiers involved in that kept diaries of that event. And guess what? Every single one of them said, they said it had to be God's safekeeping of them. It had to be God's deliverance. He gives safety to his people. But not only safety to his people, he gives salvation. Look at verse 18 and following. He says there, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The question for us as His people is what must we do now? What must we do? Well, look at all the action verbs in these verses beginning in verse 18. He says that we must fear God. We must hope in Him. We must wait for Him. We must rejoice in Him. And we must trust in Him. If my people who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Folks, in light of God's salvation, we need to repent of our sins. We need to pray. We need to humble ourselves. What in the world could happen in America if the church were to do that and experience revival? Folks, we're waiting on the world to get right with God. But you read the scripture and God's waiting on his people to get right with him. We need to repent of our selfishness. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves. And we need to look to God and wait for his salvation. A number of years ago, I told you a parable, a modern day parable about the mouse trap. Some of you remember that. I told it 11 years ago, and some of you wanted a copy of that. There was a mouse, a farmer and his wife, their home, their little clapboard home. The mouse was looking through the cracks in the boards because a new package had arrived at the farmer's house, and the mouse was curious to see what it would be. Would it be some goodies for him to eat that night? Well, farmer and his wife opened the package up, and it was a mouse trap. Well, he was devastated. He retreated to the barnyard to talk to all the other animals out there, and he began screaming and crying out, There's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. The chicken clucked and scratched, raised her head and said, Mr. Mouse, I can tell this is of grave concern to you, but it's of no consequence to me. Move on now. I can't be bothered by this. The mouse turned to the pig and told him, There's a mouse trap in the house. The pig sympathized but said, I'm so very sorry, Mr. Mouse, but there's nothing I can do about it but pray. Be assured you'll be in my prayers. The mouse turned to the cow 
And told the cow, there's a mousetrap in the house. A mousetrap in the house. The cow looked up from grazing and said, Mouse, move on. It's no skin off my nose. Well, the mouse went back to the farmer's house, dejected. Nobody seemed to care. That night, pop, the trap went off. It got its prey. The farmer's wife rushed in there without the lantern burning. It wasn't a mouse. It was a venomous snake, the tail of the snake that the mouse trap had snapped on. The snake bit the woman. She got deathly ill. The farmer rushed her to the hospital. They worked on her and said, you'll just have to take her home. Hopefully she'll get better now as the poison works its way through her system. She came home with a fever. Well, everybody knows what you do with a fever, right? Chicken soup. So the farmer took his hatchet and went out into the barnyard and killed the chicken. Well, she still wasn't getting any better. And so many people from their church and community came around visiting her that the farmer didn't have enough food to give give them. So he slaughtered the pig. Well, she still didn't get any better. In fact, she died. And so many people came to the funeral and then by the house in the days to come that again the farmer felt bad. He had nothing to feed everybody. And so he told his sons to go out and slaughter the cow, which they did. So remember, the next time you hear somebody is facing a problem and concerned about the nation or people around the country facing stuff that hasn't touched us yet. We say, hey, it's no skin off our teeth. We've been safe. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. The Bible says when one suffers, we all need to suffer. We all need to be concerned about the state of this great nation. Because folks, I'm telling you right now, if it continues to go the way it's going, how long, how long before it touches your life and my life in a personal way? Make it your prayer this morning. God bless America and Lord help America to live in such a way that she'll be a blessing to you. You see, Dr. John MacArthur has a book out, a great little book. It's a quick read entitled, Can God Bless America? And his conclusion in that, when you look at the decisions we're making, is no. Because we would be asking God to bless sin and disobedience. And his whole point is, God's people need to be what the Word of God tells God's people to be so that we'll be a blessing to God so then we can cry out in in integrity to God. God bless America and He can indeed bless America. Pray that we'd be a blessing to God that He can bless America.
Pray for our leaders. I read 1 Timothy 2 at the beginning of the text. Great responsibility that they have on their shoulders. Some are faithful stewards, some aren't. We need to pray for our leaders that God would open their eyes and help them rule according to justice and righteousness and wisdom from above. We need to pray that the hearts and minds of people all over this country would be open to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, think of what could be. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Would you stand please? Maybe there's somebody in our midst this morning who needs a personal relationship with Christ. You come forward on the first hymn of this, uh, first stanza of this invitation. Come forward. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe some of you just want to come to the altar and pray for our nation's leaders and pray for the church. That there would be a great awakening in the church. Again, folks, the possibilities that could happen if there was a great awakening in the church. Do you realize it's been about 150 years or more since the church in America has experienced what historians refer to as a great awakening? What could happen if there was a great awakening in the church? Pray for that.